The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. There is a rule in academia that whether you're in the undergraduate, the graduate, or the postgraduate level that holds true, and that is paper writing season brings a disruption to your regular patterns and habits. That's something that I'm sure some of you know, as papers are due uh, upcoming Friday or sometime after. It's true at the graduate and at the PhD level. Uh, I've just turned in my doctoral dissertation, and for the last couple of weeks, my life has been anything but ordinary. I have some regular patterns in terms of when I look at social media, when I read the news, and I try to wind my day down while not getting caught up in all of that. But this uh, last Monday night, around 8.40 or so, my patterns were all totally thrown off. And as I had my dissertation uh, sent in, I said, well, I'll check social media. And when I did, uh, one of the websites that I follow is Politico. And at about 8.40 in the evening, I was shocked. And I read a headline that after I read it, uh, I understood the English, I understood the wording, but I said, this can't possibly be right. The heading said that a draft document from the US Supreme Court suggests that they are about to overturn Roe versus Wade. And as I opened that document and then began to read the statement, and then in the hour or so after other news sources began corroborating it, that it looks like we might be heading into a time when Roe versus Wade, which codifies a constitutional right to abortion on demand in America, might be overturned. I'm sure you've probably heard something about this in the news and in your own uh, time as you've been able to pull away from the papers and exams that I hope are occupying at least a good deal of your attention as we're heading into that season. And as I read this and gave praise to the Lord that we might uh, be seeing a time when we could have in states like South Carolina abortion outlawed, I began processing this and thinking over this the last couple of days. And as I was thinking through how does the Lord want us to process news like this, there were two things that constantly kept coming into my mind. First is the words to the hymn that we just sang, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. The fact that we might be coming into a time when from coast to coast, abortion might not be the law of the land in every state is something that could give Christians a moment to pause and praise our God. But the other words that rang in my mind as I've reflected on this is, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. And I think as Christians, when we see moments like this in our culture, when something that we have been praying for, for a generation might be able to come to pass. I was thinking about this the other day. If uh, in the future, sometimes South Carolina outlaws uh, abortion, that would be, there's coming a Sunday where for the first time when I've entered the Lord's house on the Lord's day, it will not be legal to kill children in the womb of their mothers in the state of South Carolina. And that's something that's joyous and something to look forward to, but something that as Christians, when we're at a moment like this, we need to reflect on these moments biblically and put our trust not in princes, but in the Lord, our God.
And so whether you're thinking about something like abortion before the Supreme Court or elections coming up, I think Psalm 146 is the grid through which we should look at public life and public theology. Here in this, one of the hallelujah uh, psalms where the psalmist begins and ends with the inclusio, praise the Lord. This psalm in particular helps us to put into perspective that in our life, we should not seek eternal consequences from things that are temporal. In other words, the psalmist is telling us that we should put our trust in God and in God alone for real change and for real transformation. When we consider where is our help, where is the thing that is going to bring lasting change in our life and around the world, that has to be something that we find only in God and in God alone. And as we look at that theme this morning, there are just two parts to this psalm that I want us to look at. First is the frailty of princes. We should not put our trust in men or in governments or anything of this world because there is a frailty to them. And second, not only that we should not put our trust in frail princes, but second, that God and his eternal power is the one in whom our trust should repose. So as we look at the frailty of human princes, principally at verses one through four, notice that the psalm begins with a note of encouragement and a note of praise to God. Look with me at verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Here, this psalm, as I said, is framed by this inclusio, to praise the Lord at the beginning, and then at the conclusion, to praise the Lord. He begins by saying that with his soul, with his very being, he will praise God. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. Literally, with my life, I will praise the Lord, and I will sing praise to my God while I have being. And then the psalmist goes on to tell us that we ought to not put our trust in frail princes. Look with me at verses three and four. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Here the psalmist tells us why we should not put our trust in princes. And there are two principal reasons. First, a prince, an earthly government, an earthly judge or ruler is not able to provide what you and I need. Put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. This word salvation is a full and rich term in the Psalms. It can mean everything from a temporal deliverance from something, say, when David is being persecuted by his enemies. But in the full and rich sense of it, it describes the salvation that Jehovah and Jehovah alone is able to give to his people. Deliverance in this life, but most importantly, the salvation that we enjoy by a right relationship with our God through his grace. And so the psalmist says, do not put your trust in princes because they cannot provide for you what you need. Salvation is not found in any earthly president. 
in any earthly political party or in any earthly political accomplishment. No matter how good a political gain might be, no matter how good an earthly ruler might appear to be, there is, to use a term from um, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes that I know Dr. Master has been preaching to, there is a certain vanity to everything that is under the sun and particularly to the programs and the effectiveness that earthly princes have. We should not put our trust in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. And the psalmist then goes on to give us the reason why he cannot provide what we need. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. There is a vanity to princes. There is a shortness to their life. When their breath returns, that is when they have breathed their last, when they have died, they return to the earth just like the rest of us. And what does that mean for their plans? When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Literally on that very day, his thoughts come to nothing. All the plans, all the programs, all the devices that earthly princes are able to do perish with them as they die. Whether they leave office or whether they meet their ultimate end, they cannot provide the salvation that we need because they are frail, feeble, temporal, and just like each and every one of us, subject to the power of death. Our Puritan forebearers found this out to be true in their relationship with the British monarchs. Isn't that true for those of you who've had Reformation church history and know the story of the relationship between the Puritans and the English monarchs? You see so much hope beginning with Edward VI as he is a young king and a frail king, but very godly and very reform-minded and has other men around him who are very much Protestant and very much in favor of the Protestant Reformation. But as happens with so many kings, he dies. And in fact, they thought they would have years worth of benefit from Edward VI, but he died fairly young. He left in his will to uh, supersede the normal pattern of succession and not have Mary uh, succeed him, who is a Catholic. And he left his throne to Lady Jane Grey. That lasted a total of nine days before she was executed. When Mary came to the throne, it seemed as though everything would go wrong. In five years, Bloody Mary, as she's rightly called, killed 284 Protestants. Now, to put that into perspective, uh, her father, King Henry VIII, killed a total of 81 people by execution in the 38 years that he reigned. And Bloody Mary killed just 284 Protestants in five years. As if that weren't bad enough, Bloody Mary dies, and then Elizabeth comes to the throne. And the Puritans found out the hard way that it's difficult to deal with somebody who's antagonistic to you, but it can be in other ways more difficult to deal with someone who is moderate and who is willing to go so far, but not far enough to really reform. When James I came to the throne, they thought, ah, here's a man raised in Scotland who's raised around Presbyterians. Well, we don't have to go into the details there, but that didn't work out so well for the Puritans. They finally overthrew Charles I and had a, a Puritan-minded parliament, and with Oliver Cromwell, thought that they had everything lined up. Well, that worked well for a while. 
And then things did not work out as well with Cromwell. He died, Charles II comes to the throne, and then you have the great and sad ejection where thousands of Puritans are ejected from their pulpits. Up, down, up, down, up, down. So it always goes with earthly princes. And so as we look at the news coming out of the Supreme Court, as we look at the news, whatever it might be in God's providence from elections that come up, whether immediate or down the road, the fact of the matter is the Bible calls us not to put our trust in princes because they're here today, but they're gone tomorrow. As I was reading and seeing the reaction from those who are very pro-abortion, one of the things that I saw was that there was an immediate call for Congress, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, to then give a law codifying Roe versus Wade into our uh, legal system. Who knows how things are going to turn out, but the Bible would tell us not to put our trust in princes. And how, if we're going to have this sort of worldview, how can we know if we're putting our trust in princes? Because dare I say any of us, much like the sin that so easily encumbers us in every area, almost none of us would say to myself, oh, well, today I'm going to put my trust in princes. It's always more subtle than that. And how can we know if we've fallen into that trap and we're missing the wisdom that the psalmist would give to us? Well, a couple of things. Number one, I think one of the greatest indicators for where you are putting your trust is your prayer life. If at some point in the future, some president who seems to be very kind to biblical orthodoxy or a ruling from the Supreme Court comes down that strikes down Roe versus Wade, it can be very easy if you're putting your trust in princes to think, okay, well, that matter's resolved and then to move on. But if you are in prayer for the great needs that you have, your church has, that our nation has, and that the church in our nation has, what does that show you? That you are not relying on political processes, that you're not relying on material things, but you're relying on the king of heaven, knowing that God and God alone is the one who really brings change and reformation and revival. He is the one who sets up princes and removes them from the throne. What does your prayer life say about the concerns that you have for yourself, for your church, and for your nation? If you have a constant and vigilant prayer life, it's showing you that you have a sense of dependence upon God. But if our prayers are often weak, if our prayers are often lacking, that's one way in which we can see that we are putting our trust in earthly things and in princes rather than in God. I think particularly as we look at the uh, case of uh, abortion in this country, if it should become outlawed or able to be outlawed in the future, one of the ways it shows we might be trusting and relying in princes is by not continuing to minister to uh, women who are pregnant and those who are in distress to say, okay, well, the civil magistrate has outlawed it. That's enough. Well, if that's the case, if that ever does come about, the church as an organism should be just as concerned, if not more concerned, to reach out to those who are hurting and to those who are in distressed pregnancy centers. Because not only will a law, which is a good thing, do so much, we still need to be reaching out with the cause of Christ. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and I, I didn't know this, but we had a, a mutual friend 
who um, his 16-year-old uh, daughter got pregnant and was planning on having an abortion. She left, went to go have the abortion, but at the very last minute pulled back. And the family was able to tell her this is a beautiful thing to have a child. Yes, the circumstances are not ideal, but the child is valuable, made in the image of God. And they were able to give that child up through abortion because the young mother did not feel she could take care of it. And that that child grew up, graduated from college, and the family was able to see that happen. And a family that could not have children was able to have a child through adoption. That's the sort of thing that if we're not putting our trust in princes, but are trusting in the Lord our God and seeing that the ministry that he gives to us is essential and vital is a sign for us. And so the scripture would tell us, do not put our trust in princes, but then it tells us where we should put our trust, and that is in the Lord our God. Look with me at verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Here the psalmist tells us one of the great benefits and the great joys of putting your trust in God. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. You could also translate that word, as some uh, versions do, happy. There is a blessedness. There is a happiness in the full sense of that term, in the way the old scholastics used it. There is a contentedness. There is a blessedness that comes when you put your trust in God. I have one of my uh, professors who, when he was beginning his career, was teaching at the university level. And he had a little form that he would begin every class uh, trying to get to know his students. And one question that he always put, particularly when he was uh, teaching freshmen, was, what do you want out of life? Well, that's a very difficult question for an 18-year-old freshman to answer. That's a very difficult question for a 70-year-old or a 50-year-old. There's so much that goes into it. But one of the answers that over the years that he taught at that university, he got the answer back was, I want to be happy in life. And I think there's something to that that's deeply rooted in human beings, that we have a search and a desire for happiness or blessedness. Well, the psalmist here would tell us if we're going to find our happiness, if we're going to find our blessedness, it is for those whose help is in the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord, his God. If you view God as the one who has the resources that you need for the things in this life, him being your help, and if your foundation and confidence is in him, that is your hope is in the Lord, there is a blessedness that comes. The contrast the psalmist draws is between the frail and fleeting prince 
who is limited in his power, who is not able to attain all of his goals and who at the end of his days dies, but in contrast with the eternal, constant, and omnipotent God who rules heaven and earth. And in verses six down to nine, it gives us the reasons why there is such a great difference between the Lord and the resources that we find in him versus princes. He begins by reflecting on creation. Blessed is he whose help is the Lord, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. God's work of creation shows that his power outstretches any political figure or any earthly plan. If you look at some of the most impressive uh, monuments from uh, human governments, I think perhaps some of the best that you can see are from ancient Rome. If you've ever seen the Pantheon or the Colosseum or uh, various wonders from the ancient world that you see in the city of Rome, they are genuinely impressive. But one of the things that marks all of them is they're chipped, they're dirty, they're falling apart. You have to clean them. You have to preserve them. The great monuments from the great empires of earth are constantly falling into a state of decay. But by comparison, the Lord did a very good job with the heavens and the earth that for thousands of years have maintained their beauty and their glory, such as it displays the power of God. Not only is God the God of creation, who therefore is worthy of our trust, but also he is a God who keeps truth with his people, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed. Now, you could also translate this, who keeps faith forever, who keeps truth forever. The idea here being that with God, unlike earthly princes, he is eternally true to everything that he has said. That's one of the things that the more you look at earthly politics and really just human beings in general, is that when people say, I promise I will do this, you go, well, maybe. We'll see how this turns out. But with the Lord, there is truth that abides forever. His word is truth. He is the truth himself. He is the one who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, who sets the prisoner free. He is the one who here and at other points in the psalm truly cares for matters of justice and truly cares for those who are oppressed. One of the striking things if you read uh, presidential biographies is you get to compare the public persona of the man with the private man in his real thoughts through his diaries and tapes and interviews and things of that nature. And it's striking to me how when you look at so many of the presidents and so many of the different political figures through history, you oftentimes see, oh yes, I'm someone who cares for the poor. I'm someone who wants to create these programs of welfare other places. But when you actually get to know the man, you see, it was just a political tagline. It was something that was helpful. It was something that got them votes. But with the Lord, he is the one who really executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, who sets the prisoners free, who does what no one else can do, 
the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And we see also that he is the God who sets all things right. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. If you study what's known in theology as the question of theodicy, or what we might call more broadly the problem of evil, the fundamental thing that you see in all cultures, in all philosophies, and in all religions is this. When men and women look at the world, they say something is not right. It should not be this way. When we look at death, and even the death of someone who has lived to 80 plus years of age and has lived a rich, full life, when we are separated from someone we love, the human soul recoils and says, this is not how it should be. We've experienced something like this, haven't we, in the passing of Miss Curto. I was reflecting uh, when I got the news that she was in the hospital at just a week or two before I'd been in her office and she was just fine. And then the very next week or so, I get the news that she's in the hospital and I've never seen her or spoken to her since. The human soul looks at that and says, something is wrong. And when you lift your eyes to politics, culture, society, every sphere, there's something that is not right. But the, psalm tell, the psalmist would tell us that when we look to the Lord, he is the one who will really set all things to right. Those who are bowed down, the Lord will lift up. The righteous who in this life are so often trodden upon, it's the Lord who loves them. He's the one who watches over the sojourners, over those who are vulnerable, like the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked who seem to prosper so much in this life, he is the one who will bring those down. And then we find finally in verse 10, the statement of the eternal reign of God. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. The Jewish commentators, particularly when they came to verse 10, had a sense of messianic expectation. That their sense was that the psalmist, David, or whomever it might be, is trying to point our attention forward to the Messiah that the Lord God would send who would save his people, who would establish his reign from Jerusalem and who would reign forever. How much more should we who are Bible-believing Christians, as we read not only verse 10, but all the verses that precede it, think that preeminently we see the truths contained in this psalm in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David, his great son, who is right now, not just in a future time, but right now, reigning from the throne of his father David, who is establishing his kingdom, is the one through whom the father created, is the one who brings justice and mercy and the peace that comes from his gospel, is the one through whom God the father will judge all men and will put all things to right, is the one who reigns forever. And so as we think about how we should put our hope in the God of Jacob, what are some ways that we ought to apply this to our own life? Well, first, my question for you would be, are you trusting in the Lord? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? 
I hope the answer to a seminary like this is yes, that everyone here is someone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if there's one thing you learn from church history, it's that not all of those who have been in the ministry are saved themselves. I have a friend of mine who uh, assisted at various points in the translation of Calvin sermons out of Latin and out of French into English. I won't use his name, but you probably all know it. And I was surprised to discover that he was an ordained minister and that he had for years been translating John Calvin before he actually came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So you can be translating Calvin, you can be writing papers on Peter Martyr Vermigli, you can be in a homiletics class, and you might not have saving faith in Jesus. So I put before you, do you have real saving trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation? I trust and I pray that that's true for each and every one of us. For those of us who do know the Lord Jesus, let us not put our trust in princes, but let us put our trust in the God of Jacob, in our Lord. How do we do this? Well, first, let us have a zealous life of prayer, particularly as we consider the matter of abortion. I would encourage you that the best thing you can do that shows that you are putting your trust in the God of Jacob and not in princes is to pray and ask God to bring an end to abortion in our society. It would be wonderful if the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, and I think we should be praying to that end. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. You, you've been saying for this whole sermon, don't put your trust in princes, yet you're saying we should turn around and ask for princes to help us bring an end to something like abortion. Well, there's a, an old proverb here, um, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. If you have a prince who is willing to do a biblical thing, that is a good thing. And we're not putting our faith in that. We should ask God that he might use them or any other means to bring about something that is good and biblical and wholesome. I would encourage you to consider as we put our trust not in princes, but in our God to consider uh, times of fasting and times of intense prayer that the Lord might bring about some partial end to abortion in this culture through uh, the means that we're seeing unveiled before us in our culture. But in all things, you should cultivate a spirit of Job 121. If you live a life that says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, you will be able to cultivate more that attitude of Job that when things went terribly wrong for him, what did he say? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the Lord. You can say that if you are not putting your trust in princes. If you're putting your trust in princes, when things go wrong, your whole world has been turned upside down. But if you're putting your trust in God, even when things seem to go as wrong as they possibly can be, as they did for Job, if not the worst that they've gone for any uh, normal human being, when you put your hope in God, you can say, even in the worst circumstances, blessed is my God. I know he does all things right. And if we put our hope, not in princes, but in the God of Jacob, we are now experiencing the reign of Jesus Christ. 
because Jesus Christ is, as Dr. Curto says so many times, destroying the kingdom of Satan, establishing the kingdom of God. And when we see those two things, we know it's a sign to us that he is ushering in the kingdom of glory. And if we have that eschatological view of our life and of this world, we will be able to say praise to the Lord no matter what human princes do, because our help is in the God of Jacob, and he will reign forever. So let us think of our life in these terms. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we would pray, O Lord, for the establishment of justice in our land. We do pray even now, O Lord, for an end to the terrible reign of abortion. O Father, 40, 50, 60 million plus image bearers destroyed. How sad it is. The prophet Habakkuk, we say our eyes are full of sadness because our eyes are full of the blood of the innocent who has been shed so unjustly. But Lord, we would not look to courts, to judges, to magistrates. We look for you to provide real solutions. And we know that can only come through revival. And so we pray, O oh Father, that you would pour out on your church that great Pentecostal power that she might preach the gospel with all boldness, that the lost might be brought in, that the kingdom of Christ might be built up and established more and more. And, O oh God, hasten the day when the kingdom of glory is here and when our faith becomes sight. We pray for these things in Jesus' name and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. You're dismissed. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.